0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Monday the 1st of November, so here is your November Sky Guide. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. And can you tell us what's up in the skies for November? It's great to be speaking again. And
1: November is going to be quite interesting. Our friend Venus is still shining brightly and coming closer and closer to Jupiter and Saturn. So by the end of the month, We'll have a a delightful lineup of the three brightest planets in the early evening skies. The other interesting thing will be a twilight lunar eclipse, which will be quite difficult, but interesting. As always, I'll start with what's happening with the moon. So the new moon is November the 5th. So this will be a great time to see see the skies in their darkened glory. November 11th is first quarter, um, and we'll have a a nice situation where the moon will climb the ladder of planets, looking beautiful. Full moon is on November the 19th, and that's when we have our our partial twilight lunar eclipse. And November 27th is the last quarter. Now, let's move on to what's happening in the evening sky. Venus is the obvious object in the western evening sky, and it continues to be so. Last night I was out quite late, about 10.30, I could still see Venus shining uh, brightly above the horizon, and it's going to remain a beacon for us for the rest of this month and December. Venus is also coming closer to the pair of Jupiter and Saturn, so by the end of the month we'll have this lovely view of Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn forming a line in the evening sky. So Venus was at its greatest ascension from the sun late in October. And eventually Venus will start sinking back towards the horizon. If you're looking at Venus in a telescope, it's a very obvious half moon shape. It'll become uh, start moving from half moon into crescent shape as the month goes on, which will be very nice to look at that telescopically. Now Venus is in the teeth of the Sagittari- of Sagittarius for most of the month, and from the fifth to the ninth, Venus is going to be in binocular range of the Triplet and Lagoon Nebula. You might find that Venus will drown out the faint nebulosities. But the bright stars that form uh, the structure of these nebula it uh, looks, looks a bit like a, uh, a V shape, will be very uh, obvious next to uh, bright Venus. They're too far away for, for telescopes, but uh, will look quite nice in binoculars. And then from the 11th to the 16th, Venus is in the lid of the teapot. And uh, also in the lid of the teapot, as I discussed last month, is the bright globular cluster M22, and Venus will be within binocular range of M22, referring to the 17. M22 is bright enough to be seen in binoculars and not be round out too much by Venus's light. Again, it's too far away for telescope viewing, but it will be within the, within the field of view of binoculars. Of course, because Venus is moving through the star crowd with Sagittarius, it will come close to a large number of objects. But the problem, of course, is Venus is so bright and many of these things are, are quite dim. They won't be really worthwhile having a look. It's just intellectually nice to know that almost every time you look up, Venus will be close to a, a, a little cluster or a, or a little globular cluster, but you won't be able to see it. And then on the 8th, the planet dance starts with the crescent moon being within binocular range of Venus. It's actually, it actually starts on the 7th. If you've got a clear Western horizon on the 7th, you'll see the crescent moon, uh, Venus above it, then further up Saturn and, and Jupiter. Uh, but on the 8th, the crescent moon is within binocular range of Venus and will look quite nice because you'll be able to see if you've got a, a decent, clean pair of binoculars. The moon is in thin crescent shape and Venus is in its half moon shape. But for most binoculars, just be, Venus will be so bright, you won't be able to see any shape to it. Jupiter and Saturn are still readily visible in the late evening sky. They're rising before sunrise, and even though their best viewing is behind them, they're still quite good in uh, small telescopes. And Saturn was in a a good position at the end of last month for uh, maximum shadow on the rings, but you'll still see a decent amount of shadow on the rings, making the planet really pop out in 3D if you're looking at. telescopically. Sadly, they're moving close to the horizon, so your window for telescopic viewing is from when the sky is fully dark an hour and a half after sunset to about 11pm at night when they're still above the horizon, but turbulence around around the atmosphere means that you won't get a very good view of them. So, Again, I'll, I'll just go back to the point that you'll be able to see at the sea twilight, bright Venus in the west. Then if you move towards the northwest, you'll see Saturn and then Jupiter making a very nice line in the sky. And then from the 7th, the Moon joins this, this line So the 7th Moon above the horizon, then Venus, then Jupiter and Saturn, the 8th the crescent moon's uh, close to Venus. Then on the 9th, the crescent moon is between uh, Venus and Saturn. Then on the 10th, the waxing moon is now uh, uh, close to to Saturn. And then on the 11th, the first quarter moon is between Jupiter and Saturn, but closer to Jupiter, not close enough to uh, uh, put in binoculars, unfortunately. And then on the 12th, uh, the line is back again with uh, Venus Saturn, uh, Jupiter, and uh, the uh, just past first quarter moon. So if you're not sure which one's Saturn, the moon will be a very good guide to that. And just the view of of the moon climbing up the planets will be delightful. And also, if you're like me and have trouble getting your polar alignment set up, being able to set your telescope on the moon means it's a lot easier to hop to the planets from the moon.
0: A nice dance.
1: It will be very nice indeed. So what's going on in the morning sky? Well, not very much exciting in terms of planets. Uh, Mars returns to the morning sky, but it remains low in the twilight for most of the month and you won't really see it. Mercury is still in the morning sky, but it's very low in the twilight Never uh, for uh, for us in the southern hemisphere. For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, Mercury is probably at its best in the morning for this month, and I've been seeing some nice images from people in the Northern Hemisphere showing Mercury beautiful in the morning sky. So for our Northern Hemisphere listeners, this is a great time to view Mercury. And if you're a Northern Hemisphere listener, on the 4th of November, the thin crescent moon is very close to Mercury. It'll be uh, lower than twilight, but it will still be relatively easy to see. For us in Australia, it's basically unobservable. But for both the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, Mars is basically unobservable. And the stars are are looking good. So remember, in the early part of the month, up till about November the 10th, the sky will be relatively clear of the Moon. So that's an excellent time for looking at stars without the interference of the Moon's light. So Scorpius the Scorpion, which has been uh, our major constellation, is now setting. And Sagittarius the distinct uh, t 5 asterisk is low in the early evening sky. uh, Still very easy to see. And with the head of the Scorpion uh, setting, you'll have this uh, back-to-front question mark on your horizon, making you question everything you ever knew. Uh, And the teapot, again, it's low on the horizon, but you'll still have a chance to look at things, especially when Venus is moving through through the teapot. And I've already mentioned M22. But as Scorpio sets its rival, Orion the hunter, rises on the eastern horizon, along with Taurus the Pleiades. So in Greek mythology, you have Orion the Hunter chasing the Scorpion, attempting to crush it. And so by late at night, Orion will be reasonably high in the sky, as will uh, Taurus and the uh, beautiful Pleiades. Taurus is very obvious as a V-shaped constellation or in an upside-down V-shaped constellation with the bright red star, Aldebaran at its tip and the little uh, cluster of the Pleiades is not far behind. But they're not best placed. They'll be very late at night, but they're not best placed for the early evening. And I'll talk about them for the December-January sky guide. I'm going to come back to the galaxies again. I've reminded you uh, that in the last episode, I talked about Andromeda and the Magellanic clouds. So uh, Andromeda... Uh, is at highest in the late evening. So even in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, Andromeda will be able to be seen with binoculars. It'll be, uh, if you're in a really dark sky, you'll be able to see it you know, in a faint smudge in the north. Highest around about 10.30pm uh, local time. And in binoculars, you can see as an extended fuzzy patch and it's only in a telescope you'll really see any detail at all. Uh, And for us in the southern hemisphere, it's a challenge for telescopes because it's quite low to the horizon. Uh, For those of you in the northern hemisphere, it will be absolutely magnificent. For us in the southern hemisphere, we have our two dwarf galaxies, the small Magellanic Cloud and the large Magellanic Cloud. So at the same time as uh, Orion is at its highest, the large Magellanic Cloud is uh, almost at its highest view south. And this will be a great time to see the globular cluster 47 Tucana, one of the best globular clusters in the sky. And now it's sufficiently high for the large Magellanic Cloud. So if you're looking due south at the small Magellanic Cloud, just east of the small Magellanic Cloud is the large Magellanic Cloud. And it's now sufficiently high above the horizon for a good view in the sky without a telescope or binoculars. It's a, a fuzzy patch, but uh, if you're in a really dark sky, you can faintly see the remnants of the bar through uh, through the middle of the uh, large pantalonic cloud. Through binoculars, there's a wealth of, of small objects to, to look at, but your eye will probably be drawn to the tangled knot of glowing uh, gas that is the tarantula nebula. So at this point of time, there's not too much in the sky to look at that's quite visually dramatic. Most of the clusters in the uh, in Carina and Vela and Puppis are are right on the horizon across the southern hemisphere. But the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud are a source of really nice objects. Now, I talked about the partial lunar eclipse. Partial lunar eclipse of uh, 19th of November is, again, not very good from Australia because it's in twilight. So a difficult eclipse, west, eastern coast, okay from the central states and really not particularly good from Western Australia. So uh, also with the uh, full moon of 19th is uh, uh, an apogee uh, full moon. So you uh, if, uh, if you've taken some images of the uh, the moon when it was at Perigee earlier this year, uh, now's your time to uh, take some images of the moon for Apogee and you compare the two moon sizes and if you've got a good memory you might be able to remember what the moon looked like earlier on and note that it's smaller. So 19th difficult uh, partial lunar eclipse in the twilight. It may be be difficult, but it will still be very interesting to watch along with a apogee moon. The only other thing is the the Leonid Meteor Shower. While famous for spectacular outbursts, we're now in in between uh, the major outbursts and uh, it's got very modest rates but this year the uh, the peak is on the 18th uh, with the full moon interfering substantially, so you're unlikely to see uh, very much at all.
0: Okay. Well, get and see a bit of eclipse anyway, and maybe the it's meteor shower. Have you got a tangent for us, Ian? I do indeed have a tangent
1: for us. In the past few tangents I've been talking about asteroids and comets, and I'm going to continue this theme, talking about comets, and it's a bit about uh, size and comets, and I'll start off with Comet C slash 2021A111, which is a bit of a mouthful, but we're going to get a Christmas comet, inverted commas. Now, again, uh, I have to remind people that when astronomers talk of bright comets, They mean comets that can be resolved in amateur telescopes, not that they're going to be really bright to the unaided eye. But it looks like Comet Leonard will indeed get bright enough to be seen with the unaided eye. It probably reached about magnitude 4, which is a reasonably bright sky, but by the time it gets into the sky where it's dark enough for us to see it, it'll probably be only magnitude 5. And I'll come back to that in a moment, because when we think about comets, we normally think about their tails. We think of those mag- magnificent tails stretching across the sky. and uh, For example, the magnificent rooster tail of Comet C slash D1 with Norwood. But those spectacular tails are relatively rare. Spectacular tails come from the nucleus. Now, the nucleus of the comet is relatively small compared to the huge expanse of the tail. Now, the nucleus of a comet, as I've mentioned before, is a mix of ices and dust. And when we talk about ices, the ices are things like carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide and ethanol. You probably don't want chunks of carbon monoxide floating in your afternoon drinks, uh, as well as your water, of course. And the dust is mostly hydrocarbon gunk. Along with some other things that we would like to think of as dirt, but yeah, when we talk about cometary dust, a lot of it is actually complex uh, organic chemicals, not grains of sand. Now we know from spacecraft flying by and the Rosetta orbiter that the material of comets is kind of loosely packed, mostly like mostly empty space. Uh, it's been said uh, that the uh, uh, the comet is has the the uh, the density of a of a snowbank. Uh, for those of us in Australia who have probably never seen a snowbank. Imagine getting a a bunch of shaved ice, a uh, mix up a bit, uh, mix up a handful of shaved ice with a handful of brown sugar, and you've got an idea, roughly uh, roughly an idea of what uh, a comet is like. Now, most comets are on elliptical orbits and come from uh, out the orbit of Jupiter or further out to deep within the solar system. As the comet approaches and suddenly heats up, the ices start to volatilize and blow up in space, taking bits of the dust and ices with them. And this forms the spectacular tails that we see. So you'll have uh, iron tails from gas that has been uh, ionised, uh, glowing with a, a bluish light. And you'll have the magnificent dust tails uh, glowing with the, uh, a, a yellow light. And sometimes the uh, breakdown of the complex hydrocarbons produces uh, diatomic carbon, which uh, gives a green glow to the comet, which I can never see for the red-green colour line. And we've, we've uh, seen spectacular jets of gas and dust erupting from the fishes in the comet of 67p surface currency of the Rosetta orbiter. So how big and bright a comet's tail gets uh, depends on a, a range of factors. And uh, for example, how close the comet gets to the sun. Of course, the closer a comet get, gets to the sun, the more stuff is blasted off because of as it heats off. Uh, how close the comet comes to Earth because if you're if, if it's on the other side of orbital. Or Orbital side from Earth, everything's further away and it's dimmer. And some of the really most spectacular comets have been uh, comets that have come very close to Earth, Uh, astronomically speaking. How often this comet is coming to the inner solar system, the more time a comet comes into the inner solar system and has the sun blast of its volatiles, the less volatiles are left, the less material is it is to make a spectacular time the next time around. And to some extent, how big the nucleus is. Now I'll give you a moment to imagine this magnificent tail stretching across the sky. How big do you think the comet is? How, it's in a core, the lump of dirty ice uh, and, and treacle that we call the cometary nucleus. Ooh. Well, on the whole, they're surprisingly small. They're typically less than 15 kilometers in diameter. And the majority of the range in is range about one to two kilometers. So, C/2006 uh, P1 McNaught, that really spectacular comet with the rooster tail, its nucleus was probably in the range of about two kilometers in diameter, but it came very close to the sun, it's skimming above the surface, and catalyzed uh, a lot of material and dust blasted out into space. The less famous but also spectacular uh, uh, C/2011 W1 Lovejoy produced this amazing searchlight-like tail, which didn't last very long, uh, but that was generated by the complete disintegration of a comet just larger, slightly slightly uh, under half a kilometer in diameter. I, I don't know if anyone went out there saw it, but I, when I first went out to, to have a look, I was disappointed because I thought that someone had turned a searchlight on us and was going to interfere with my uh, view of the comet and then I got down to the beach and realized the searchlight was the comet. It faded rapidly of course because once you have uh, destroyed the nucleus the comet's tail has nothing to sustain it and it just goes away. In contrast I uh, remember Comet Ison and all the uh, back in 2012 and all the uh, guff that is around uh, Comet Ison and how it would be either uh, harbouring of the structure of the earth or be the best comet uh, for, for ever. Uh, it disintegrated before it got uh, to the sun and we didn't get to see a visible tail at all. Uh, it, it was slightly larger than uh, 0.8 of a kilometer. So, we, uh, so some of the most spectacular comets are quite small and some of the fizzing comets uh, can be much uh, larger. For example, the legendary Comet Haley is 15 kilometres on its longest axis, not spherical. And in 1910, it gave us a fantastic view because it came very close to the Earth in its orbit. In fact, we Earth passed through Comet Haley's tail. Then in 1986, everyone got out looking for Comet Haley. Uh, looking for a really spectacular view, and all we saw was a fuzzy dot because it was very far away from Earth in its orbit. So the same same comet can be either spectacular or a fizzer, so to speak, depending on how far away it is from Earth in Earth's orbit, even though uh, Haley is a a quite regular producer of dust and gas. Rubber duck shapes uh, 67P, Orbited by Rosetta is four kilometres uh, longest axis and only visible in telescope. So we don't know how big the nucleus of Comet Leonard is yet, but it's probably on the order of a, a kilometre or two. And when it approaches the sun, it'll be just outside of Venus's orbit. Hayley, for example, comes just inside Venus's orbit. And so it may write uh, uh, a brightish magnitude four, like I said before. But of course, that'll be really close to the sun. And when it gets far enough, away sun, to the sun across the sea, it will probably be about magnitude five. And again, I'll talk talk about this in detail next month. And it actually makes its closest approach to the sun in uh, January. But for uh, for us in the uh, uh, us, we'll see it the best in December uh, of 2021 because of the the, the way its orbit uh, and our orbit uh, line up. So that's a fairly uh, interesting but uh, uh, Christmas comet, but fairly ordinary. Another comet making the headlines is not visible to the unaided eye, and that's Comet 26P. I'm not going to say the name. It's something like Saks Horseman or Lockman 1. Uh, unlike uh, Haley or McMort or uh, Ison, it's around 60 kilometres in diameter. It's huge. And it's also famous for its semi-regular increases in brightness. In fact, it's it's fairly regular, so having on average 7.3 outbursts per year. Not the exact number. It also has more outbursts when it's closer to the sun. Now, the most recent of these outbursts has just occurred, and it increased its brightness by a factor of a thousand. That that's huge. That's a huge amount of brightness. Of course, it was only it only got to telescopic from. Uh, to telescopic visibility from telescopic visibility, so not exciting for um, us in the unaided eye world. And a month earlier, in September, there was a series of outbursts that resulted in it being enveloped in, in a glowing ga- cloud of gas, and then the uh, October uh, uh, eruption added a new uh, pa- parcel of gas to this glowing cloud. So Apart from its size, which is uh, 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 quite large, and it's about the same same as uh, size as Hale Bopp, which is an incredibly spectacular comet, but because twenty nine P never gets close to the sun and just outside uh, Jupiter's orbit, it's always a faint telescopic object. So again, it's big, but it's apparently covered in cryovolcanoes. Now, a cryovolcano is uh, a volcano that. Shoots out ice instead of, of of lava, and what's happening is that uh, you, they've got fissures like those on uh, Rosetta that semi-stable, uh, and for example, the outburst uh, we saw um, just now in October was took place around 59 days after a um, similar outburst on August 25th. And so it's probably uh, the same cryovolcano erupting a second time. So again, while you may think of cryovolcanoes as these nice little cones, it's probably uh, an overgrown fissure. Having having said that, the cryovolcanoes on Ceres do have these lovely uh, cone shapes. And so uh, why the the 59 days? Because the collet uh, rotates and it rotates slowly. It's about a rotation of about 57 days. And as the sun warms the surface, the, uh, these uh, cryovolcanoes have these, these outbursts. And when I say ices, uh, it's uh, what's probably driving the cryovolcanoes is carbon dioxide ice, not water ice. At, at the distance of the, uh, the comet, uh, water ice is quite stable. So probably pockets of uh, CO2 ice being warmed up by the long duration of the uh, of the of the comet facing the weak and feeble sun, blasting uh carbon dioxide and and other materials out of the cryovolcano. Now, Celine P is big, sixty kilometres, unusually big for a comet. But uh, another comet that's been in the news recently is C slash 2014 UN 271, otherwise known as Bernadelli Bernstein. And I'll just say just say big comet from now on. Now, its nucleus is somewhere between 100 to 200 kilometers in diameter. Ooh. And it's one of the largest known comets. Other very large comets are 90, 95P Chiron, which is about 200 kilometers in diameter. c slash 2002 BQ 94 you just love these names, linear, which is about 100 kilometers the Great Comet of 1729, uh, which is about 100 kilometres. And of course, I've already uh, mentioned uh, Hale-Bopp, which was uh, 60 kilometres and hour, hour and 29P. So the comets of this size are quite unusual. And also, it, it, this, this, side, this size is in the same range of asteroids such as Seven Iris, one of the early known asteroids, and 16 Hermione. So if you're just going by size, you'd say, oh, that's an asteroid. Now, Mega Comet is perihelion, is just outside the orbit of Saturn. And it's never going to be bright enough to see without a decent telescope. And uh, its perihelion is it on the 5th of April, 2031, if you're feeling like waiting for it. But it's going to get no brighter than Pluto. So a magnitude of it somewhere between 13 to 16. And it's interesting because it's one of the handful of comets that we are usually sure originated from the Oort cloud. So its size blurs the line between the comet, asteroid, other icy bodies in the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud that we think of as minor planets. But of course it's not the first. Uh, I mentioned the comet 95P uh, Chiron. Uh, Chiron was originally just known as Chiron and it was one of the first centaur objects discovered. Uh, icy objects uh, out beyond the orbit of Jupiter. Uh, and it was cometary in H was only discovered much later. So the centaurs are a group of small bodies that orbit the sun between Jupiter and Neptune and crosses the orbits of one or more of these uh, uh, giant planets. So centaurs typically exhibit the characteristics of both uh, asteroids and uh, comets. And with our mega-comet added to uh, the mix and the persistent geological activity of 29P. This once again shows that our fixed categories of planets, dwarf planets and minor planets, uh, and then things like comets, blend into each other. And uh, there, There's uh, been more disputes about whether Pluto is a planet or not being coming up. And I think I think everything's on a spectrum. So disputes about other uh, boundaries uh, sh- should be futile. I think we should actually s- simply glory in differences of these objects. I mean, a, a, a giant uh, comet, uh, volcanoes on it, is pretty damn spectacular, uh, whether you want to call it a minor planet or a comet or whatever. And so when you're uh, out uh, looking at Comet Leonard in late December, or early December or late December, uh, you can think that it's one of a group of bodies which truly disrupts our notions of what uh, a planet should be like. And that's my tangent.
0: Fantastic. Lots of things to watch out for and never knew about such a variety of core sizes for comets. Yeah, it's quite astonishing. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog, Musgrave. Great things to watch out for in November.
1: Thank you very much for that opportunity. I love speaking about these things, and I hope everyone has a great November looking out at the wonderful things that are in our sky. Thanks, Ian. See you, mate. Thank you. See you later, mate. All the best. Cheers. You have a a good time, and hopefully you get to see your family next weekend.
0: I hope so. Fingers crossed.
1: Okay, mate. All the best.
0: Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And in two weeks' time, we've got a sensational interview for you with one of our planet's foremost SETI researchers, Dr. Jill Tarter. She's amazing. We'll see you in two weeks. Yeah. Radio right